Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is the 14th part of the reading and we're on chapter 15. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can not only support this podcast but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 15. Across to Cape Cod. We invited the old man on board and he asked us various questions about where we were from and where we were bound. He introduced himself as Mr. Stoddard of Baccarat, a fisherman from childhood, although he only did a bit of lobstering now and had a share in the fish trap outside. He invited us to his house for tea and, glad to stretch our legs, we gratefully accepted. All the time we had been in the harbour, we noticed a really strong smell of fish, and when we scrambled up to the pilings with Mr. Stoddard, we discovered why. Fish guts were spread about all over the planks on the pilings and in two large bins, with the wooden boards swollen to twice their proper size with accumulated splashings of blood and fish scales. The smell now was awful, and we hurried along suppressing slight heavings of the stomach, we walked along a dirt road to our host's house, gulping deep breaths of fresh air. After a good tea, we returned to the Nova, holding our noses past the worst smell and taking care not to skid on the guts. The wind was blowing strongly now, and we were glad to be in Baccarat. We went to sleep that night with our last conscious thoughts on the smell of fish which surrounded us like a thick cloud. We awoke late the following morning, and when we sheepishly poked our heads out of the hatch, we saw several fishermen looking at the boat. After a few pleasantries such as sleep well and good afternoon, we cooked our breakfast. We wondered why the boats hadn't gone out, but when we went on the pilings after breakfast, we could see a familiar sight, the fog. Cape Sable is notorious for ledges, rocks and racing tides. We were told that it is a bad place for an engineless boat, even on a clear day, and that we must have a fresh wind. The youngish man to whom we had been chiefly talking gave his name as Claude Brannan, and said that while we were waiting for the weather to clear, we might like to come up to his house and meet his wife and children. Well, we thought this a kind gesture, and accepted with thanks. At Claude's house we met the family which included many children of all ages from a few days to twelve years. We were treated with the greatest of hospitality. The warm friendliness of that contented family was in marked contrast to the windswept surroundings of Baccarat. It must be a terrible place in winter, catching fish and lobsters in the freezing water after cutting a way down to the boats through the snowdrifts was a job for iron men. The fog kept its grey shroud over the land and sea for the rest of the day, and Claude said, as you won't be sailing in this, come along to our adult Bible class at the chapel. This took us aback, and we looked at each other's astonished faces and feebly said, Thank you, we will. Back at the boat, we wondered how we could make ourselves respectable, for by now, we only had the clothes we wore, the others having mildewed and had been cast overboard. We combed out our hair and beards, and at the appointed time we set off for the chapel. Stanley, clad in dirty flannels and a horizontally striped t-shirt, Charles wearing a flannel shirt purchased in Canada, previous year with a very coloured plaid as its motif, and completing his ensemble with a pair of dirty grey trousers. Blue sneakers and no socks made up our footwear. 
Feeling very shy, we entered the chapel where all heads slewed round and we met the gaze of many eyes. We quickly slunk into some vacant seats by Claude and his family. Before we finally departed from Baccarat, we found that the majority of the people were deeply religious and, what is greatly to their credit, they practised it in their everyday life. After the meeting, we all went to a tiny general store and drank pop and then returned to our fishy berth. A noise of engines, shouts and splashings awoke us next morning. Good. If the fishermen went out, then so could we. A cup of tea and a boiled egg were quickly downed and up on deck we dashed. The sky was faintly streaked with reddish gold clouds to the east. We unlashed the sails and were just about to hoist the main when we noticed a complete lack of movement in the air. No wind. Strange we hadn't noticed it, but in the excitement of getting underway, as the motorboats did, we had overlooked the essential thing. Hardly a breath of wind blew all day, and wandering listlessly about in the green-brown fields just above the wharf, we discovered several medium-sized mushrooms. From then until evening, we were excited with the thrill of the hunt. Meeting one or two of the inhabitants, we told them what we were doing and showed them two large paper bags nearly filled with mushrooms. We were surprised to learn that they had never eaten them, but they had heard of a man who used to come by car to collect them. One kindly woman said, If you eat them things, I'll show you some big ones. We followed her up to the back of a nearby shed and she proudly pointed to what we thought were large fungi. Closer examination proved them to be enormous mushrooms, each one about the size of a dinner plate, and found to have more flavour than the smaller ones when cooked. A storm sprang up that night and heavy seas sent a bad surge into our harbour. All the boats started to bump and seesaw about. We spent a hectic hour or two altering mooring lines and putting fenders out where the chafe seemed worst. We received another invitation that morning. A tall, stalwart young man introduced himself as Obadiah Christie and said he would like to have us to supper and then take us to the Pentecostal chapel for a revitalist meeting, having seen us at the Bible class. For the rest of the day, we watched the low clouds scudding overhead and heard the roar of the breakers on the rocky shore. The sea was lashed into a mass of broken water. Bell Rock, half a mile offshore, kept throwing up curtains of water which were flung downwind to mix with the other flying spume. This was a day to be snug in harbour, but we were coming to the conclusion that we might as well build a hut and settle there for the winter. After supper with Obadiah and his charming family, we went to the chapel and listened to the exhortations of the little minister, who sounded most sincere. Liquor, smoking and idle ways were an anathema to him. When the next day brought a flat calm, the kind folks of Baccaro had a laugh at our expense. We had come for a few hours, at the most, and already four days had passed. We must like the place so much that perhaps we thought of marrying and settling down. We told them we had already thought of building a house, but had felt a change in the weather coming, and we would leave in the morning. Three days later, on the 24th of August, we actually tried to sail out of the harbour bound for New York, but once more, the wind dropped away completely, and we were ignominiously towed back two hours afterwards, back to Baccarat. It sounded like a song title, and we could write the words. The last three days had been heartbreaking. We finally left Baccarat on the following day, a light northeasterly wind took us past Sable Light, and with a mile-long ledge under our lee, we edged cautiously southward. At one time the wind felt very light, and we thought we would be swept onto the ledge by the tide, 
There would have been little chance for us if that had happened, for a heavy swell thundered down on the rocks, but fortunately we were past the worst before the wind fell away altogether. At 5pm, a flat, calm, teased us for a while, but two hours later, the northeast wind returned, and we soon had Seal Island in view. This is the most southerly islet off Nova Scotia, and although the evening twilight dimmed its outlines, we could imagine its barren loneliness. Our favourable wind increased in strength, and we rushed at top speed into the black night. 11.30pm brought blonde rock light abeam, and we were glad to be past that vicious cluster of rocks which thrust themselves up from the sea. We were now in clear water again, for our course would take us across the 230-mile stretch between Nova Scotia and Cape Cod, between which the Atlantic forms the Gulf of Maine. The Gulf is a big sea, some 250 miles long from its entrance to its northeasterly tip, which is the Bay of Fundy, notorious for the height of its tides. After the wastes of the Atlantic, the distances seemed small, but the passage before us was nearly equal in distance to the crossing of the Bay of Biscay. The following wind stayed with us throughout the next day, 26th of August, and except for grey skies and a cold drizzle, we had an excellent day's run. At midnight we were becalmed and stayed becalmed all the next day except for a few wandering puffs. We were now on a steady diet of fish, for, of course, we were presented with loads of it when we left Baccarat. Fat mackerel, cod and salt haddock were served in various ways. Two visitors inspected us in the evening, a whale which luckily didn't come too close, and a shark which dived every time we clapped our hands. The sun appeared for a short time through a break in the grey clouds, and an evening longitude sight was snapped. Our good run on the previous day had brought us 110 miles from Cape Sable, nearly halfway to Cape Cod. Conditions were repeated on the 28th of August, calm grey sky and a small swell on the green sea. We ate up a large slab of salt fish which made us do some overtime water making. It was a pleasant change to be awakened by the sun which made the motes in the air seem like floating gold dust. The calm persisted in spite of the change in the appearance of the weather. Two morning longitude sights were taken, and we found that we had drifted seven miles, chiefly in the right direction. As the sun felt so nice and warm, we decided to have a seawater bath, first soaping ourselves all over, and then jumping overboard to rinse off. The water felt as though it had just run off a glacier, a few seconds in it was all we could take. Fog then enveloped us at midday, and our horizon narrowed to within a few yards of the boat. We could hear the throb of engines every now and then, but saw nothing until about 4pm, when a schooner passed close to our bows under power. At 6pm, the fog lifted like a stage curtain, and we could see at least a dozen boats near and far. It was always pleasant to see them about, for they gave us a feeling of companionship, a breeze from the south-southwest filled our sails shortly after the fog lifted, and sea music, unheard for nearly three days in which we little more than drifted, was welcome to our ears. Soft notes from the rigging, a murmur of bass from the bow wave, and incidental sounds as we slipped through the water. We witnessed a strange and amusing sight in the evening. A gull was standing on the water with its wings folded and its legs clearly visible. We were miles from rocks, land or shoals, and were naturally amazed, for there appeared to be nothing beneath them. We altered course for a closer look, 
and then saw that he was standing on a thin square board submerged about half an inch below the surface. The funniest part of all was to see the astonishment of the other gulls, who just couldn't pass this phenomenon without having a good look. Some even landed and paddled up for a closer inspection. How proud and superior the water-walking seagull looked. During the night, the wind veered to the west and we altered course to pick up Cape Cod Lighthouse, which we estimated to be now only 50 miles away, almost due south. The west wind went idle again the next morning, 30th of August, a month behind schedule and nearly 200 miles to go, even when we reached Cape Cod, we were going to be a little late for our appointment in New York. By mid-afternoon, we were moving in the right direction, with a fresh breeze and clear, sunny weather, and that was a very pleasant change. America was sighted at 6pm the same day, Cape Cod showing up in its right place to the secret surprise of the navigator. We held a quiet celebration and drank a toast with something stronger than tea to that great country. An hour later, an event took place which worried us a great deal. Away in the distance, a seaplane suddenly altered course and headed in our direction. Once overhead, it kept diving at us. We waved at first, but that got monotonous after a while, and we thought we were being used for target practice. Then we noticed a parachute with a bright yellow container attached, floating down towards us. It fell about 50 yards away on our starboard beam, and we altered course and picked it up. On uncorking the container, we found a message which read, If you are Nova Espero, clap your hands above your heads as we make a low pass. U.S. Coast Guard, Papa Bravo Mike, 84733. We scrambled on the cabin top and clasped our hands as instructed. We got a friendly wave this time as the plane flew just above our heads. As soon as the excitement was over, we thought about our families at home and how anxious they must be if we had been reported missing. At any rate, we would be reported safe now and near land at that. When night fell, we were within two miles of the shore, tacking west around the eastern question mark shape of Cape Cod. At 11pm, we were so close to the shore that we could see the fires on the beaches which silhouetted figures of merrymakers, and we could hear the cacophony of civilization, motor horns, train whistles, shouts and the rumble of traffic. We continued round the well-lighted head of the question mark and finally headed into the calm, sheltered waters of Provincetown Harbour. The night was very dark and the lights on shore were a dazzling contrast, which made the job of lookout man very difficult. There seemed to be numerous boats about, but we wended our way past, chiefly by guesswork, until we were in a spot which seemed quiet and away from houses. At 2am, we lowered all sail and threw out the anchor in two fathoms of water. We gazed at the lights in the distance and shook hands in mutual congratulation that at last our anchor was firmly embedded in thick American silt. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Trimaran Spirit, sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. 
Well, that's all for today from the Mariners Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.